so I, I want to sort of start with, with, you know, talking a little bit about just a, a thumbnail from you about his life. I mean, if you just, um, for people who don't know his work, he is well known in New Haven. And I think for a lot of our audience, um, for people who don't know his work, just maybe give sort of a brief thumbnail of, you know, sort of the, the, the arc of his life. And, but then I'm just really also interested in your, your involvement with this and the creation of the book. You know, the, the, the book is just so a whole different layer. Um, the, his, you know, the writing, the, the words that were told through your work and with him and just the sort of the, the de- more, the, the greater depth of the story too. Winfred was born in 1945 in Southwest Georgia in a small town called Cuthbert, where he lived outside of town on a plat- a cotton plantation with his great aunt, Lillian Rembert, who's the woman who raised him. He was raised by her in this situation where she was working in the cotton field and he went with her and, uh, and was, um, was working in the fields by her side for many years, taken out of school in order to work in the cotton fields. It was a very difficult situation, uh, hard work, long days. And um, he eventually ran away from home in order to avoid this working in the cotton fields. And he discovered the black community in Cuthbert, Georgia, um, where he became a part of this community of people who had black establishments, pool halls, juke joints, um, restaurants that Winford would frequent. He met people. He um, took joy in the discovery of this community and in being part of it. And it was at this time of his life that he was introduced to the civil rights movement. There was some organizing going on in these black establishments. People would gather to talk about the civil rights movement demonstrations going on in the area. And Winford decided to join the movement. He uh, went to a couple of demonstrations in Americus, Georgia. One of them turned violent. There were shots fired. People were running. He attempted to escape by running down an, an alley, turned around to see two white men chasing him with shotguns, and um, saw next to him a car with the keys in it. He jumped in the car. He um, escaped and was later arrested. He sat in jail for about a year and a half, close to two years with no charges and no visitors. Um, He became frustrated. He plugged the toilet in his cell and flooded it. The deputy sheriff came back and began to beat him up and there was a struggle between them. Although Winford didn't plan this, he ended up um, resting the deputy's gun away from him and escaping by locking the deputy in the cell and um, fleeing. He was later rearrested and brutalized by a white mob that included law enforcement and other civilians. They took him out to the edge of town into the woods and um, threatened to, to castrate him and to kill him. They decided not to do that in the end. He was paraded through the streets in Cuthbert and sentenced by a judge to 27 years in in prison. He served seven of those years, many of them on chain gangs. And this became the subject of the art that he produced later in his life. He learned how to tool leather while he was a prisoner 
in the Georgia system. He and another inmate would tool wallets and billfolds and sell them in the prison yard. And it was, unbeknownst to him at the time, a discovery of a medium that would become the medium for his artwork later in life when, at the urging of his wife, Patsy, who he had met while he was a prisoner and later married upon his release, he began to craft on leather canvases scenes from his childhood and his early adult life in Georgia in the Cuthbert area and uh, depicting his experiences in prison. So he became, at the age of 51, an artist telling the story of his life on leather canvases, which he would tool and then dye, to present scenes from his memory of his memories of his youth and the exper his experiences of brutality in the criminal justice system, as well as some of the moments of tenderness of people he remembered from Cuthbert, Georgia, who had been good to him. So he's produced hundreds of wonderful canvases of these autobiographical scenes done in a very unique and powerful way, using leather tooling and dyeing these canvases into <clears throat> brightly colored, um, imaginative, creative, musical um, presentations of these memories. Some of them are very grim moments in his life. And it's remarkable that he was able to produce them as works of art with the kind of beauty and invitation to consider his experience that they provide to the viewers. And I think one of the really extraordinary things about his life is just um, his, his personality. He is, he's just a, a person and he, does this, he describes himself who, who, who everyone, you meet him, you like him. He engages so many people from so many different um, walks of life. Um, and, and starting as, as we will we'll talk some about the McBlains, um, but I, I, I was very curious about how you came into his life because you know what is your what is your title at, at Tufts? I'm a professor of philosophy at Tufts, and my work is in ethics and political philosophy. I became very interested in ethical questions around the criminal justice system uh, many years ago, and have been thinking and working on issues related to the criminal justice system. And that led me to meet Winfred in a kind of roundabout way. And that was that I was finishing a book about the philosophy of criminal justice called The Limits of Blame, Rethinking Punishment and Responsibility several years ago. The book was published in 2018. And as I was working on the book, I came across Winfred's artwork online. I saw these pictures of prisoners that he's, he, he's done, these remarkable, um, very, in some ways, very modern, somewhat abstract but very deep paintings about the subject matter of incarceration and his own experience. And I found them to be remarkable. And I read about him and learned that he had been incarcerated. And I became very interested in the story of this artist who was depicting prisoners as part of his subject matter and that this reflected his life, his own life experience. So I arranged to meet him and I interviewed him asking him to talk about his experience in the criminal justice system in relation to this other project that I was doing. And he, he talked about the impact of prison on his life, which was enormous. He said that it affected his whole life and he didn't see much justice in the criminal justice system. And he talked about what he'd been through on the chain gang, which was um, very brutal experience and left scars for him. 
he spoke in a very open way, in a very reflective way, in a really kind of deep and interesting way. So when I finished the project I was working on um, and I had stayed in touch with him, we began to talk about the possibility of doing a book uh, about his life in his words and from Mm. his perspective. I was available and interested to hear his story. I wanted to hear what he had to say and uh, he needed help writing the book. So we decided to try working together and we began that work in March of 2018. I would travel from the Boston area where I live to visit him in his house every couple of weeks, a couple of times a month and interview him. And then we began to build this manuscript where I would transcribe parts of the interview, arrange them, read them back to him. And then we would discuss them together. He would elaborate and we would let the story lead us to the next event that he wanted to discuss. Um, And it took about two years to complete the first draft to have a complete version of the manuscript. And then uh, COVID shut us down. We couldn't meet in person anymore starting in March, 2020, but we had just a few loose ends to, to tidy up in order to complete the story and do some revisions on it, which we did over the next several months. Unfortunately, Winfred died in March, 2021. It was after the book was completed, but before it was published. So he didn't see the final published version, Mm -hmm. although he did see a pre-printed copy and had reviewed the whole thing and was really happy and excited that his story would be out there in the world and that people could view the art together with the story. Because one of the remarkable things about this book is that the story is woven together with uh, images of from Wimford's paintings that also tell the story of his life. So it's a kind of conversation between the narrative that he tells and uh, the paintings that he's produced that um, fill out the story in a really fascinating and and beautiful way. And the the publisher, Bloomsbury, you know, had this vision to include many images of Winford's artwork in the book. So there are over 75 reproductions of his paintings in the book that you and on very high quality paper, really beautifully printed. So you can read his story and explore his artwork along with his story and understand what these works of art were about, how personal they were, um, how they tell part of the history of this country through his experience by depicting the life of black people in the South in the Jim Crow era as he experienced it and as many other people did as well. And I think you understand that when you read the book. Well, I think it's, uh, and I'm so sorry he didn't live to its publication. It's an extraordinary book. And I think just in the way that his art uh, transcends so so many things, it's just so incredibly beautifully, beautiful made by such a, such a talented person and his, his words as well. And I'm sure as, as, as you help to craft all of this, um, it's such, it's such a great, great read. It's so, it's so powerful, but I know that it's also been published to, to great acclaim. And um, we, we, I, I just saw, we saw all me last night and it's just such a, you know, the wonderful thing about him uh, in, in the movie, he returns to Cuthbert, returns to that to that region for uh, an exhibition, <clears throat> and just to be able to come back to his home and get that attention from people. But you know, and so now this is another layer having 
this publication that would have also just, you know, he, must, he would have been thrilled with with everything that's that's come from it and um and just what what a what a storyteller he is his use of language is incredibly powerful he has a very direct way of speaking and then he'll add his thoughts about the experiences he went through he expands on his feelings about what happened to him now and how he felt about it also at the time so it's a very rich portrait of his inner life. At the same time, he very powerfully describes what life was like in Cuthbert, Georgia, using um, language in this really kind of unique, musical, um, I don't know, creative and expressive way. I think his his manner of speaking is really beautiful and we tried very hard in putting the book together to make sure to preserve the cadence of his voice and the turns of phrase that he used um, so that everything in the book is really Winfred's, Winfred's voice. And you can, you can hear what his voice sounded like and what he thinks and feels about what he'd been through in his life. Um, so he was really happy about that. He was really happy about that and very excited that people would be able to read his story and he'd be able to leave that behind at the end of his life. You're listening to Listen to Supported, WPKN in Bridgeport at 89.5 FM. I'm speaking with Aaron Kelly, who is the co-author, along with artist Winford Rimbert, of uh, his memoir called Chasing Me to My Grave, an artist memoir of the Jim Crow South. And I, and I think for people who know his work, and if you don't know his work, you should go look at his work. Um, the you know, his, his, the number of details that might be in one of his larger, larger paintings, there might be hundreds of details. And I, and I think that comes through also, and hundreds of telling details that comes through also in, in the book. Um, just some of those small, those, those small stories, um, you know, hanging out with the, the kids at the swimming hole that he would go to, um, you know, the, the incredible kindness of his, of his teacher, um, as well as many other people, people that he met. And that's just, um, it's such, it's such a rich, a rich and nuanced and, and in a way I can't imagine anyone's just sitting down and um, it, telling this story in, in the way, in the way that he told it. Um, but it, but it, all of these things about him always just sort of lead me back to where he was and that this, this man of such, such talent and, wisdom and warmth um, came so close to losing his life and something that happened to hundreds and thousands of other people through, through lynching. If there hadn't been that one person there who, who stayed, stayed, stayed the, uh, say the hand of the person was about to, you know, castrate him um, and, you know, take him down for the tree, he would have been lynched. We would have never known that. And you just think of all the other people out there who, whose lives we've also lost. That's, that's the thing that always is just so powerful to me, to me about his story. Yes, I, I agree. And I think the detail that you were describing comes from the incredibly vivid memory that he had. He could revisit these scenes in his life and in his mind, revisit these, he could revisit these scenes in his mind and describe all the detail that he could see uh, through his memories. And that's captured in the book. So when he talks about being at the swimming hole, you know, talk about kids cooking fish on a stick, and you can just really imagine 
what it was like. There are all these um, fine details that he had captured in his paintings, and now he's he's uh, he's recorded in in the book. So he had a remarkable memory, very vivid memory. I think it also caused him a lot of pain because these experiences that you're referring to of his near lynching and other violence that he suffered traumatized him and came back to him in all their vivid detail throughout his life, um, haunting him in his nightmares and, um, and, and um, also troubling him when he was attempting to record the details of these memories in his artworks and in telling his story. It is remarkable that he survived and uh, we can learn a lot, I think, from his retelling of these experiences, the courage and fortitude uh, behind his ability and willingness to tell these stories in a way that captures the past that he survived and provides some insight into it for those of us who didn't live those experiences, who may care about knowing about them and feel that it's an important part of the history of this country to record in all of its detail and to understand. Well, I think it's also such a cautionary tale for right now because we are again at an era where, where people of, of color are being dehumanized, um, are, are being demonized in ways that just come through in, in so many details in his book. Um, it, it, maybe you could tell the story of The Laughing Barrel. The Laughing Barrel was a barrel that some whites had in the town square that they gathered around and used to humiliate blacks who were walking through the town square or happened to be in the vicinity. And the way in which they humiliated people was to um, demand that they stick their head in this barrel. And then the whites would tell a joke at the expense of this black person and demand that they laugh into the barrel. And this was a kind of form of entertainment um, that these whites had invented um, and used to inflict degradation and humili humiliation on ordinary people just trying to go about their day. So it's something that Winford described in the book as one among other things that happened to, to Blacks in Cuthbert, Georgia, that were the kind of daily degradations that they had to endure and couldn't do much about. Winford said, you know, if you didn't laugh in the laughing barrel, they're going to charge you with some kind of crime and put you in, in jail and make you do work around the city for a few weeks. So um, it was a, it represented the powerlessness of Black people in that town um, and was a constant reminder of this social system of white supremacy that, you know, imposed such a rigid order on on the South and this town in Cuthbert, Georgia as well. And at the same time, he was always he, in the book, he's, he's also able to sort of step out of that and, and almost, I won't say humorously, but ironically, say things like, you know, what, what, what is it with these white people? They spend all their time obsessing over, over, over black people and thinking of ways to humiliate them. And, um, you know, don't they, don't they have anything better to do? Um, that yeah. you know, was amazing. You know, there's that thought of being able to step aside and, and think that about these people. Yeah. He had a lot of questions about it. 
he he wondered about that a lot and i can understand why because it at some level it makes no sense there's no value in it it's just an exercise of power i guess some perverse form of entertainment as well but to to winford that you know the idea that you would kind of organize your your time your life your town around these you know these these kinds of um exercises of you know meaningless superiority was a mystery to him and it's also um you know again it's just those those sorts of tales and, and also just his entire time on the, on the chain gang and the prison system in georgia were um i'm just are, are stark and brutal it, it the, throughout the book is always balanced by just his love of humanity of lo his love of people he's met i and I, I was i was really struck again i watched all me last night reread it or rewatched it after reading reading the book and um you know he he in the movie he walks down a, a particular street in his town cuthbert called hamilton avenue and hamilton avenue was the where the juke joints were where the pool halls were it was life it was the black life of this town and in the movie, when he walks down, he's just pointing to vacant lots and he's saying, you know, this was there, or this was there, but it really comes alive in the book, just in the, the words, his telling of the stories from there. Yes, it was so alive in Winford's mind throughout his adult life. He would go back and revisit Hamilton Avenue in, in his mind by, you know, thinking about these memories and the people that he would remember uh, on Hamilton Avenue who were good to him, who who loved him, who had a good time with him, the dancing, the singing, pool playing, you know, these were really joyous, joyous memories that nourished Winfred through the bad times in his life, through the tough times, um, and gave him a lot of pleasure in his older age to just revisit and discuss and elaborate and celebrate the people he remembered. Um, so Hamilton Avenue is the name of one of the chapters of the book, and it was Winfred's favorite chapter he asked me to read that chapter over and over, and then he would laugh and talk about how great these people were. And oh, if I could just have seen them, you know, I would have just gone nuts. It was so, so great, you know, the things that they did and the dancing and, you know, the unique characters, Papa Screwball and Egg, everyone seemed to have some, you know, unique nickname and a story behind it. And uh, Winford took a lot of pleasure in talking about these folks. You're listening to listener-supported WPKN in Bridgeport at 89.5 FM. I'm Valerie Richardson. I'm speaking with Erin Kelly about her uh, the, the memoir that she co-authored, and it's actually the memoir of uh, the artist Winfred Rimbert called Chasing Me to My Grave, an artist memoir of the Jim Crow South. Your your book also reveals a lot about him that wasn't in the movie, and I, and I think in the movie... And and in just my my own having heard his life about his life, um, it was almost sort of a a, a gradual a gradual um, path from from him leaving his life in Georgia, coming to Connecticut. It also, he you know talks about his his great love for his wife Patsy, um, which we we could talk about as, a, as sort of a separate thing. But um, he reveals a lot more in the book that really I I hadn't known. He landed, um, he came to, to Connecticut. He was a longshoreman for a, a while until he was injured. And um, 
living in Father Panic Village, which people who, in Connecticut who hear of Father Panic Village will know what that was. The housing project it just was um, very, very difficult, very hard life. Um, it was also a place that was you know, known to be full of drugs. And he, he did fall into drug dealing, which I, was as part of his story that I did not know about. Yes, that wasn't included in the film that was focused more on the events of his life that were connected with the paintings that he did. But we felt like it was important to tell Winfred's whole story, or at least a lot of the central events in his story. I mean, his life is so rich that we couldn't include everything. And he told me that he hadn't even broken the crust of a lot of it, but we went as far as we could. And that included a period of his life when he was really struggling with poverty. He and Patsy had uh, quite a few children and he were they were having a lot of trouble making ends meet. And he ended up dealing drugs, um, making a lot of money from it. And of course, it's a risky business. And he was eventually caught by the police and um, sentenced to federal prison for drug charges. He didn't spend much time in prison, fortunately. Patsy uh, <laughs> contacted the judge and is very was very convincing and told the judge that when she needed Winfred and he was a good man and they had all these kids, including quite a few sons, and she needed him there to help raise these kids. And the judge was apparently a compassionate man and recognized that that Winfred, you know, was a he, he wasn't a bad person. He was in a difficult life situation and he was struggling and making choices that represented some desperation. And the judge felt that he could put his life back together and if he were released and be a responsible parent and make his way forward. He asked Winfred to promise never to deal drugs again, which Winfred did. And he kept that promise, even though he said it was pretty tempting when they had no money to get back into it, but he never did. And even when they were in New Haven and his own, his own children were, were hitting, hitting adolescence, um, you know, he had, he had, I guess, a reputation in the neighborhood as being the person who really, you know, protected his kids against uh, the drug dealers, the, you know, falling into that life, um, I guess, almost literal, literally being on the street corner with them and, um, you know, interceding, it sounds like sometimes. Yeah, he, he was a very involved parent. He didn't want his kids dealing drugs. They lived in a neighborhood that was, you know, had drug dealing going on and gang activity and the threat of violence. And that impinged upon their family and sometimes affected their kids um, in threatening ways. And, and Winfred had to literally stand up and fight for them on some occasions, um, which got pretty complicated. But he prevailed and his, kept his kids safe, um, or at least they survived. One of his sons was shot, but recovered. Um, and uh, Winford and Patsy worked very hard to keep their home intact and to provide for their kids and to protect them from the violence of the neighborhood. I think the, uh, the, the Pats, Patsy is really sort of the, one of the, the three threads through the whole story. And um, I mean, maybe talk, talk about how he how they first met. This is the story. It's in, in the movie and in the book, but certainly much told a much greater depth in the book. Yes. Winfred and Patsy's love story is a central theme of the book. There are actually two love stories, as I view it in the book. One was a disappointed love story about Winfred's search for his mother's love. She had relinquished him as a child. And as I mentioned earlier, 
he was raised by his great aunt, Lillian Rembert, but he was, you know, hurt and disappointed that his mother had given him up and it became a, a kind of a theme of um, a painful struggle for him to in some way connect with his mother, try to understand why she had given him up, seek the love of family that he didn't receive from her and that he always wanted. Um, so the book opens and closes with his search for his mother's love and his attempt to find some kind of peace and come to a moment of compassion and forgiveness for his mother, which he, he did discover. And that was a great accomplishment and something that I think the, the writing of the book helped Winfred to accomplish. His love story with Patsy was a, um, a wonderful, victorious, victorious love story in the sense that they formed a, a lifelong bond, decades-long marriage, and a very deep love for one another. It was Patsy's idea for Winford to become an artist, um, and she was a great source of support to him in his life, and somebody with whom he discussed his creative ideas, his plans for his artwork, and pretty much everything that was going on with his life. They were remarkably close. They met when Winford was on the chain gang, working on the side of the road near her home in Ashburn, Georgia. And he saw her. Um, she was in a truck with her sister and a man who they were working for to help plant some plants um, somewhere in the, in the neighborhood. And uh, she caught Winfred's eye and then he, he stumbled upon her again um, some weeks later, or I don't know exactly how long later, but um, in the near future after his first having come across her, he was building a bridge as part of the chain gang workforce near her house and um, walked by her house and saw her in the yard and, uh, and approached her, asked her family for a glass of water and, and they, um, they gave him the glass of water and they talked and Winford and Patsy were looking at each other and that was actually the beginning of this beautiful love story with her, you know, sneaking over to the prison camp to visit him and they're exchanging love letters and it blossoming into what became a lifelong partnership. Which also becomes much richer in your, in your, both of your books, um, um, the um, Chasing Me to My Grave, um, because it does also talk about her struggle that she went through as he, as he fell into drug dealing. Um, he says he never, he never took drugs. He was never, you know, he never, he never took drugs, but he, he sold drugs and um, he was able to rationalize it in a lot of ways, but she, as she describes it really felt him slipping away. It sounds like she was almost, um, and in fact, a couple of times she would, she would go places and confront him and, and um, you know, if, if he were anywhere near another woman would uh, go after the other woman. Um, she, she, she's a, she's a very strong woman, but she also at the, at the time that he was arrested, finally, um, as she said, he, she went to the judge and, and asked for him to be released. But she also said that that was, she felt like he got, she got him back at that point. Yeah. She, she felt like she'd been losing him to the life on the streets and, um, hanging out in the club, selling drugs, just not being uh, a present, present father in the home. And so she struggled to, to get him back. Um, she did and literally fought other women and um, confronted him. And, and then when, when he was imprisoned, you know, pled, 
pled his case to the judge and um, eventually he returned home and they resumed their family life. But those were tough times. They were tough times. Um, tough for Patsy as well as, as as well as for Winfred. And it became clear that as we were writing the book, Patsy's story was also very important, not only in terms of, you know, her being instrumental to his becoming an artist and the beauty of their love story, but also to think about what she'd been through, what she had suffered, um, some of the difficulties of, um, of their, their struggle with poverty. And so we decided to include Patsy's voice uh, on its own as its own chapter. There's a, a chapter in the book called Patsy's Story and Patsy talks about that period in their life and then kind of goes back farther into the past to talk about how she met Winfred and to talk about the depth of her love for him. And she talks about it in a really beautiful way it was, and it came out so beautifully and so thoughtfully and so perceptively, it hardly needed any editing. It was just incredible the way she could kind of reveal this, the layers of their story together and their love together um, and their, their life together and how she felt about it. And to, kind of um, take us through the ups and downs. It was very moving to talk to her about that. And I think that her chapter is a real highlight of the book. And then she also made some really essential connections that they had in their life. Um, um, uh, Sharon McBlain um, had reached out to them as, as, as um, part of her outreach from, um, I, I would imagine the Unitarian Society of New Haven, perhaps that, um, you know, to help, to help out uh, this family that was in need, and and she became um, she became very close friends with Sharon McBlain, and then Winfrey became close friends with uh, Phil McBlain, her husband. McBlains are antiquarian booksellers in, in Hamden, so it's it's sort of an unlikely pairing of people, but but this, these are the, the sort of people that they all were, and that connection, and it was after that connection was made that then Patsy also started suggesting that he needed to, with his talent for drawing, which he would carry out with, I guess, pencils on, on grocery store bags, that he take that and put it, she said, put it on something that would be permanent, put it on leather, since he knew how to work in leather. And so it was really her, she, she led him to really these uh, very essential friendships and creative paths in his life. Yes, that was a very beautiful friendship between the Ramberts and the McBlains. Maybe that's the third love story in the book. Um, it was incredibly deep uh, bond and friendship, very supportive to Winfred and encouraging to him about his potential as an artist, his accomplishments as he began to produce art. And Phil and Sharon, Patsy and Winfred would get together, talk about the leather work, talk about the themes and that Winfred was planning to tell through his leatherscapes, his um, leather canvases, and they would discuss these things and Winfred would talk about his life. Um, and it was a um, very important set of relationships for both Winfred and, and Patsy. And I think deeply satisfying for the McBlains as well. It was wonderful to hear them talk about each other. And we got together sometimes and they told stories about their friendship as well as as some of the travels that they had together, had taken together to Cuthbert, Georgia. And I think that's what uh, it ultimately comes out in the book and in, and, and, and in the movie, um, just the, this rich, rich life that they 
that Winfred had around him during the last, I guess, couple of decades of his life um, with his, these relationships with his artwork, with the, where his artwork took him, but just also with the sort of his role and Patsy's role within the neighborhood and taking in, um, taking in children who needed help. And even though they didn't have a lot, they were always sharing what they had and bringing people into their orbit. orbit. And um, that's just, what a rich life he had. Yeah, you said that very well. Both Winford and Patsy cared deeply about children and wanted to help kids in the neighborhood. And that was the initial connection between Sharon McBlain and Patsy Rembert. They met at some local organization where people were organizing to try to help kids in the neighborhood. And both Sharon and Patsy were very interested in this. And Patsy had taken in some children into their home to support them and help them to um, go to school and, um, and to protect them. And uh, this was, you know, and something that, that, that Sharon was interested in, in being a part of and helping and um, represented something about the importance of Winford and Patsy in the neighborhood. And as you said, sharing what they had with other people, even if they didn't have very much. So what has this been like for you? When, when was the book published? The book was published in September, 2021. And, and um, it, it, must have, it must be very interesting, sad, bittersweet for you now being talking about the book and talking, doing interviews and everything without, without having Winfred with you. Yes, I, I miss Winfred. I wish he were here to talk about the book. He wanted so badly to talk about the book, to sign books for people, uh, to you know, elaborate on some of the chapters and to be a part of that. He really wanted that. Um, so that's sad and disappointing. Um, but I, I feel really grateful that we got the book done. I think it's a wonderful book. I'm happy to talk about the book. And I've been doing some events together with Patsy Rembert. And her voice has been um, a really um, interesting and important um, part of the story that's been amplified through the events that we've done. And she speaks wonderfully about, about Winfred and his importance and her perspective on him and also her perspective on her own experience in Cuthbert, Georgia. So that's been really rich, uh, really rich and satisfying. And, and uh, I've been really pleased to be a part of that and to have had her as a partner to talk about the book, even though we're both sad that Winfred isn't here to do that himself. I, and I think this book really does um, you know, will, will speak, speak to so many people on so many levels, just engaging with the, a wonderful, wonderfully told story, engaging with his artwork. Uh, but, but also then for people who really are sort of in tune with, with uh, where things are today and, and um, how, how it, it has not been many, many years since the events of, that he had in the 1960s took place and, um, and, and it's just, everything feels very fragile right now. And I think where we're at. Yeah, we're, we're in a difficult, we're in difficult times. The society is deeply divided. We're, you know, con confronted with the devastating era of mass incarceration that's, that's been harming so many people, millions of, of people. Um, I think understanding something about the history of the criminal justice system 
its history of brutality, you know, the state involvement in, in these policies and how they affect people's lives is important for us to think about now. So in certain ways, things have changed. In other ways, it's just the, the you know, the, the form of the brutality has changed, but not the fact of it. And I think we can reflect on that as we read Winford's story and think about where we are today. And I'm sure there, there are also still people out there, uh, and there will be people out there who who have so much to tell as he did, who, who will never be able to tell it because they've lost their lives um, through, through violence, through um, being dehumanized it within the prison system. Um, you know, he was, he had, he had a fighting spirit. He had a remarkable spirit to be able to rise above everything he did. I think that's one of the really incredible things about him. He did have a fighting spirit and he, he definitely felt that it was important to make it clear that the story he was telling was his personal story, but also reflected the lives of so many other people and what they went through. And it's true. There are people who, went through a lot and didn't survive and aren't here to tell the story, their stories. And we can learn about some of the circumstances of their life insofar as they're similar to what Winfred went through. But there's so many people still alive today with incredible stories to tell about that era, you know, older people who lived through that and, and people, you know, de- dealing with all kinds of life struggles today um, who aren't at the center of our attention who we might learn learn something from. So I think there are a lot of stories out there, a lot of interesting, important stories that reveal deep things about our society and that we should be listening for these stories uh, to learn about, you know, all these different angles of experience on our American society and, and its history. Well, thank you so much for your part in telling telling this story and helping this story to get out. I'm just, I was so excited. Um, you know, when he, he was so sad when he died and, but then this, this book came out and um, it's been so, so wonderful to see it and to um, now, now to read it. So thank you very much. Thank, and thanks for speaking with me today. Thank you for your time and interest in the book. And it was a pleasure to talk to you.